clubhouse. You know what losing a child gives you? Terrible, visceral pain and overwhelming sense of failure. And then there's the, the surprising one. It's a kind of freedom. Nothing matters. Not ever again. So you're capable of anything. Anything. If you don't come through for Carlo, it would be the easiest thing in the world to cut your heart fucking hard out and feed it to the river. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Welcome to Tales from Yaya's, the Your Honor podcast. Tonight we're talking about part seven of Your Honor. It was written by someone and it was directed by someone else. But I don't know because when we watched this, Caroline, it was an unfinished screener. So the credits were not yet inserted. So I don't know who wrote this and who directed it, (laughs) but they did a great job. Well, did they, Mike? Because I think that you have some questions. You know, you actually said it best. It was a very different vibe, especially coming off of uh, weeks five and six, which I thought really, really ramped up the pace and the tension. To be sure, there were a lot of tension moments in this episode, especially when Jimmy and Michael were up in each other's faces, Mm -hmm. like really anxiety ridden. And just the opening scene of Jimmy racing through the streets of New Orleans uh, is I was for sure he was going to kill someone or run into someone or something. It was such a dangerous like driving thing. It was a much less urgent episode. Uh, It it felt uh, like a lot of table setting for me, which maybe with three episodes left, they need to start putting everyone where they're going to be. It it did feel odd because most of the time, you know, we would get this at maybe like episode four, maybe, you know, right around in there where they have to kind of like regroup and like reset where everyone is. This felt a little bit like with five and six going so much faster. It was feeling like I think I even said to you, I felt like we're climbing a roller coaster. We're going, we're going, we're going. And it it would be like if suddenly the roller coaster slowed back down at some point. You were like, what is happening? (laughs) Yeah, the roller coaster kind of slowing down is a great analogy. It. But it had to slow down at some point. And we talked about this last week. Once it's going to move, if it's going to move into a courtroom, that's a whole other kind of tension and a whole kind of speed and pacing. I was braced for it, but I guess I didn't expect it in this episode. What did you think of the very long disposal of Trevor's body with Frankie and Michael? And uh, there was a lot of dialogue. There's a lot of just holding the camera steady in that scene. I understand if there's some feeling that we need to be very steeped in this crime that Michael is committing, because this is really the first hands-on wrongdoing His level of participation has just changed entirely in this episode. He's gone from cover-up guy to, like, full-on participation. And despite the fact, I mean, there's a lot of other things he does that actually bends the law, breaks the law, and does stuff. But this, I mean, is huge. So I understand that. But again, just because of the pacing and what I was used to, I felt like we spent way too much time. I would also like to say that 
here is when I really noticed how red Frankie's hair is and his beard and everything. And I said out loud, as a henchman, I feel like you want to blend in with the crowd. He has such a thick accent and his red hair. I don't see how he doesn't get fingered all the damn time for being at places. He's just that good at his job, you know? I guess so. Other than when he absolutely had to, he didn't really do much, right? He, I mean, he, oh, was, no, he, no, was, no, Mike, no. he was having Michael do the work. And I imagine on most jobs, you know, if there's going to be any kind of crowd, he probably has his goons, his own like foot soldiers that do most of the heavy lifting and work so that he can probably remain a step back and maybe a little bit more anonymous. Sure. But I'm just saying, like, walking down Michael Street to go into his house, Nana Pistachio over there saw a redheaded man. How many redheaded men do you think that there really are percentage-wise? Not a lot. That ginger. Mm-mm. I was just noticing, and I was like, wow, because we spent so much time with him. I was really starting to doubt his henchman capabilities. I mean, I think he's pretty good at his job. Maybe oh, looks-wise no. he, he sticks out. He is. Yeah. I just meant, like, the hiding in plain sight. It's not happening for, for Frankie. Uh, no, that's a totally fair thing. Let's back up because I, I was using that really as because I agree with you. I think from what we were used to, I think it was just last week where I was praising the kind of really fast paced, tight editing, cutting back and forth. Felt like we spent a lot of time. It was luxur it was like luxuriating. That's not the right word because that makes it sound like a good thing, but we were really well, like I said, steeped in it. Like, I felt like they yes. were making us go in and out and in and out like a teabag, right? Like, I just felt like we were, like, having to absorb everything that he was doing. And I get it. I get it. And when we have that wash-off scene, I get it. He is at rock friggin' bottom. But I just thought we could have <laughs> taken less time to do it. It was as if we were going through it, through his penance and his his bottoming out, all of the blood. I mean, the white shirt and the tremendous amount of red blood on it and the struggle, the physical struggle, the the doubling of the shoe nuts. All of it felt like it was a real time like we were suffering along with him and, and not suffering because it was painful to watch. It was a bit gory and gooey and certainly gross and the brains and all that kind of stuff was, was kind of sick. But it was more like we were experiencing his pain in real time along with him, which I think is what they were going for. And I think it was effective, but it was such a different kind of vibe from what feel like every other scene in every other episode had been like. Well, it's interesting because, you know, we said, why didn't we see anything that happened with Kofi? You know, and I said, maybe this is the kind of show that doesn't show us all the gore and everything. They just kind of like you know, cut away. You know, we don't see him get beat. We don't see these things happen. But then we have this and it was like, oh, wait. Yeah, it is. It, I guess, you know, when they see fit, we are going to really sit here and have to deal with this. The show also wanted to take its time with the dialogue. And there was actually pretty minimal dialogue. This was a very physical scene. It was the kind of scene that if you were like playing with your phone and not watching the TV, you would have missed 90% of what happened in the scene. But I think that makes the conversation about the Michael's birthday and the irony and Frankie pointing out that we're well past irony, which I actually really love that line. And Me too. What are you a philosopher? What are you a judge? Like, I love the back and forth. I, I, that really worked for me. And I think it was really effective. I think it was even more effective than it would have been because there had been so little dialogue before then. 
but it was it was just totally a very big shift. And I think that it took me a second to kind of get used to that. But this whole episode was lots of long shots. And we can go to the beginning of the episode. It was a really long time watching Jimmy frantically drive through the traffic in New Orleans, trying to get out back to the hotel to intercept Carlo. It was a really long time with Gina and Nancy trying to cover for Joey and 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 dr- dragging out the arrest process. Like we stayed with everything really long in this episode. I got to tell you, the opening of this episode had me on the edge of the seat. This was actually a really tension-filled drive-through when he's trying to get Carlo on the phone and he's getting more and more frantic and more and more dangerous and reckless in the car. How did this episode kick off for you? I thought they did a great job of showing another father trying desperately to save his son and just the absolute hopelessness that that the kid just not picking up the phone like carlo oh my god every time the phone rang, he like glanced at it and he didn't pick it up i was like oh my god like every father in the world is like god damn you child you know michael just had this argument with adam two episodes ago Yep, it's a whole theme about trying to help you, trying to help you, and you just won't accept the help. There's, I think there are two main themes in this episode. One of them is the similarities between Michael and Jimmy, that for all of their differences, one's a judge, one's a crime boss. One only has one child and a dead wife. One has a wife and, and multiple kids. You know, just very kind of different personalities. They're supposed to be very different. But when you get down to it, how different are they? They're really just kind of shades of gray of each other. And I think this episode, the conversation that Jimmy has with Fia, especially talking about unconditional love and how even no matter what Carlo does, he still loves Carlo. And, I, you know, I love all my children. Everything, everything Jimmy's doing is being mirrored by Michael in some way. And so much of what Michael is doing is being mirrored by Jimmy this way i agree i think even down to having uh, michael wear a suit for the whole marina part he didn't have to be wearing a suit he could have been wearing a lot of different things but jimmy and frankie are wearing suits and so there was something about how like he kind of morphed into one of them and i think that's what the show is trying to do you said it last week and and since you said it it's been rattling around in my little brain the idea that the show because of the pacing of the show and because it hadn't how they've approached resolving all of the storylines or they've gone about resolving the storylines the show has gotten incredibly small the world Mm -hmm. has gotten incredibly small and i think part of that is that we are seeing the thin line that divides these people becomes thinner and thinner and thinner each week absolutely yeah who's the good guys and who are the bad guys are is becoming much more murky it's it's kind of hard to tell i mean I, I don't think there is good and bad anymore at all there's there's it's all just we're all just doing what we have to do to get by today i mean uh, trevor trevor is a perfect example of that right uh, jimmy pulled the trigger splattered his brains everywhere but michael signed that death ticket he signed that oh, death he warrant. did he, he could have so said did. he knows nothing he could have said uh, he's part of the deal. You have to spare him, too. He could have done a lot of things, and he didn't. And so not only did he physically dispose of the body this episode, Trevor's blood is literally literally and metaphorically on Michael's hands. So the good guys and the bad guys, very, very, very thin line. What Michael does to Sarah, to his boss in this episode, that's some criminal mastermind level shit that he does in this episode. But I got to tell you, there is one piece of shit, though, above them all. 
<laughs> does it start with a C and end in an Arlo? It does. <laughs> listen, listen. No, you listen. Pick up the goddamn phone when your father calls. If oh, your father God. is calling you six times, one after the other, there's some kind of an emergency. You owe it to your parents. Show a little respect. Pick up the phone. Don't be a little shithead with with your music and and Joey who does not look well. Joey no. looks like he's in bad shape. The the drugs are not doing well with Joey. He's just got such a punchable, punchable face. Uh, <laughs> so starting there, you know, the idea that he, you know, starts cursing at Nancy during the arrest, everything about him is unlikable. I, I want to hear from someone that thinks he is a likable character. I can't imagine there's anyone out there. So can I tell you something that's very personal and embarrassing and terrible and maybe even more than embarrassing, shameful for me? Please. One time, one time, I didn't pick up the phone when my mom was calling me. This happened about 10 years ago. And I was just, I was on a call or something and I, and it was my mom and I didn't click over. Mike, she was in the middle of a holdup. She was being held at gunpoint. She had gone into the bathroom. She had called me. 911 wouldn't come without the address of the place she was at. And she couldn't like, she couldn't think of anything to do other than call me to try to get the address. And I didn't pick up. And it was my dad who called directly after because she got through to him. And he was like trying to tell me what was happening and that I needed to get this address and get there because I was the only person I knew where she was at because she had my car getting a car entertainment center put in for the kids. And she had my son with her, with her and the two of them were crouched in a bathroom locked behind a door during a, during a robbery um, at gunpoint. And yeah, and I didn't pick up the phone. I ended up streaking down the highway. I, I waved police cars to come with me because they were going to like pull me over. And I was like, I rolled down the road. I'm like, you need to follow me. There's like a holdup going on. Like I brought the police to the place. Uh I will never not pick up the phone again. You so Jimmy Baxter pick did. up you, the phone. You, uh, I did. I did exactly that. But I was like waving the police with me, and they were and the, the the police go, "How do you know a holdup's going on?" I'm like, "You just have to come with me," <laughs> because because it wasn't coming through their 911 dispatch, and I was like, "It's because no one knows the address of this place." Like oh I'm trying God. to explain. That's it was just terrifying. like under the highway kind of place. That's why it was being held up because it was this like under the highway kind of place. So and the lesson here folks is pick up the phone when your parents call more than a decade and my mom just has to side eye me and be all like pick up the phone i'm like i'm sorry it's horrible so yeah pick up pick up the phone that i think that might actually be peter moffat's overarching theme of this entire series it might actually be when your parents call you pick up the phone that might be the only thing we're supposed to get out of your honor yeah it actually might the red herring might be how far <laughs> would you go for your child it actually might be just pick up the fucking phone if and it's like call. actually sponsored by like the fcc it is and like the parents <laughs> children's council or whatever yes advisory council <laughs> You know, you and I, I feel like the last two episodes have been talking about Carlos going to get arrested. You know, the question is, what is he going to get arrested for? Is it going to be for Kofi's murder or is it going to be because of the drugs? I always thought it was drugs. Right. I mean, he gets arrested because of the murder. 
she kind of she kind of says the drugs can go away. The drugs are less important than the death penalty charge that you're facing. But in the end, because he had literally the the bag of cash on him when the police arrested him and Nancy shows up on the scene, he ends up getting kind of arrested for both. So I feel like we were kind of uh, we were kind of right on that as it turned out. I, I don't think either of us are surprised that Carlo acts like such a jackass in this scene. It seems really on brand for him. Are you surprised that Gina, Gina, who knows when the police show up? I mean, she takes the call from she takes the call from Jimmy and doesn't mm-hmm. have to ask any questions. Just the code of get him out of there. She knows what this all means. She's aware that he's involved in stuff because, of, you know, she said, I'll make sure you're not disturbed. So she's fully aware that he's doing things that are not good honestly even more so than jimmy is aware uh you know she doesn't know why the police are coming there but she knows that he's up to something it was just it's just an interesting fact that gina you know she can get that call from jimmy and not ask a lot of questions it's a testament to how involved into the world she is but i was surprised that she got so in nancy's face i mean there's a reason for it but you have to be paying attention to the scene to to get it she's covering for joey but still that's still putting yourself out there if you're a baxter you you know you think you'd probably want to be a little more wary of the police i don't know gina is the type of woman who gives no fucks and she's of an age where you know women give less fucks and she just you know she she's asking questions that are not they're not wrong to ask asking you know the arresting officers their names is not actually out of line at all and asking what they're being charged with and all that stuff is not out of line at all i think it's her delivery that probably is more unusual I think that most parents might be yelling or might be crying or might be begging, but the way that she's so cool and calm and just like piercing with the way that she speaks to them, that is what sticks out to me. She is a use to this sitch. She's seeing people get, get arrested. Right. I mean, that whole thing, I mean, her whole demeanor says a lot about her comfortability w- with what is happening here, right? You see a lot of times the the mob wife is often depicted as you know, my Bobby's an angel and doesn't do anything wrong. You know, he loves his mama and he sells oysters and, you know, and whether or not they're innocent or, or, or just playing dumb, that's usually the position they take. Like what's happening here? But she's not a mob wife. She's not a mob wife. She's, she's my boss. So we're, and you know what? I think that if Jimmy had been there, the, the roles were reversed and Gina called and said, get him out of there. And that's all she said. I think Jimmy would have played it much the same way. He would have said in a in a stern, dry, direct way, what are your names? What is he being charged with? Like, I think that she played the part perfectly. One thing you got to give the Baxters, head and shoulders above everyone in this series, is they are unflappable. Uh, whether or not you approve of their tactics, and I would hope most people don't approve of their tactics, they are impressive to watch at business. They are a team and they and they know how to take in basically their their you know enemies, the cops, Big Mo, whomever. They know how to take them in, process it, and then dole out what they feel is justice. Just staying with the Carlo storyline. Mm-hmm. Joey gets away. I mean, he makes faces to Gina, and that's actually what prompts Gina really to go forward and insert herself. She she kind of makes a diversion so he can get out the back way. He ends up going to kind of a flop house. He doesn't, one, he doesn't look good. He looks extremely sick from the drugs. But two, he doesn't seem, he doesn't have the Baxter unflappable cool 
I, I there's a couple of people who walked out of this episode making me feel like they are wild cards about loyalties and how quiet they're going to remain. Mm. I was curious what your take on Joey was when he finally arrives in the kind of safe house <laughs> or safe whatever space that is that he's in. When you say you didn't see me here, <laughs> you already show that you are less of a pro than everyone else. You just shut up and go, Joe. You don't, you don't say, Hey, y'all. Hey, y'all. Look at me. You didn't see me. <laughs> like, weasel, just get to your room and be quiet, you know, hide your little selves. So yeah, he's definitely not only that drugs add unpredictability. There is an element of a lack of control when it comes to drugs. Joey. Whether he's sick because he's taking the drugs, whether he's sick because he's having withdrawal, whatever his issues are, he is not going to be making decisions in a way that someone who wasn't into the drugs at all would be. So Joey's already on the on the board for like, we don't know how desperate Joey's going to get. We don't know what kind of choices he's going to make. Even if he was sober, how desperate or loyal he would be is one thing. When you are looped out of your brain you become unpredictably desperate, you know, and it, it, like you said, it adds a whole extra layer to the desperation because he doesn't have the Baxter name uh, or a Baxter junior associate maybe, but that's not the same as having the ice cold blood, you know, water in your veins as the Baxters do. So he's probably already a weak link to begin with. Now you add that he's like high on heroin cut with fentanyl, super unpredictable, super unpredictable. I think I think he is a real loose end who is going to wind up maybe sharing some space with Trevor. I think that's very fair. <laughs> yeah. And and I think Gina covers for him really more out of uh, self-preservation in the moment. You know, if Joey gets caught with the drugs right there. And for Carlo, I mean, the least amount of evidence, you know, possible would be the best. No witnesses, no evidence. You know, you can have, if you're a rich family, you can maybe plausibly have $150,000 on you in bills. Um, interesting, though, uh, about Joey. And, you know, you always hear you should never get high off of your own supply, right? It's a, it's kind of a no-no. If you are being a businessman, you should also not be doing drugs. A lesson Joey has not learned. Probably not a lesson that Carlo has learned either. Well, he's the guinea pig. He wasn't meant to be the businessman. I guess it's true. But I... I I have to call attention, though, to the conversation between Jimmy and Big Mo, where Jimmy says, and we talked about this last week, Baxters don't deal heroin. And Big Mo, fantastic line. Some Baxters do. We doing droppings now. Baxters don't deal heroin. Some Baxters do. <laughs> i loved it that was like a mic drop situation i was like nice big mo yeah jimmy is so in the dark and we talked about this in terms of who knows what and sometimes it drives me crazy in a show where it's like if everyone just sat down and said what they knew this shit wouldn't be happening you know but in this case i understand this is the dynamic of the household like gina doesn't know what jimmy knows jimmy doesn't know what carlo's doing carlo doesn't know what jimmy's talking to he doesn't know he's going to Big Mo. All these things are happening. And this situation is just going to get worse and worse because the, the people are talking behind everyone else's backs now. The Baxters are. I think Desire is very much on the same page. I mean, Little Mo <laughs> was unhappy with the deal Big Mo cut with Jimmy, but because he doesn't play chess 
three steps ahead like Big Mo is playing. I, I think she took a look at the landscape as it presented with Jimmy and Frankie there in the moment, kind of decided that nothing was nothing good was going to come of pushing it pushing it forward right then. And and then she has to you have to imagine being Big Mo being exasperated that she has to explain herself to all these youngins after you know uh, Jimmy and Frankie leave. We're going to keep dealing with Carlo just to fuck with Daddy. Who who is someone in this scene, Caroline? To you that looked like maybe they weren't falling in line with that plan. Oh, I'm completely worried about little man. I I am so concerned about the amount of information he knows, the amount of different people he has crossed paths with. He's a little like the baseball. Like he's had interactions with Lee and Michael and Little Mo and Kofi himself. Like I mean, he knows a lot of stuff. And so I'm very concerned for the whole group about where little man's alliances are. I don't know. Maybe he ends up falling on the side of Michael, for God's sake. I don't know. It it could be because he's watching all this Baxter shenanigans and maybe he's going to be like, you know what? Maybe Michael and Lee are the people I need to be talking to. I see Lee because he's already kind of she's already kind of reached out and tried to establish a relationship with him, has established a relationship with him. I mean, he was initially reticent to talk to her uh, about the autopsy situation, but eventually did come back to her and gave her the information she needed about the different dads and and told her where to find Kofi's real father or birth father. There is a relationship already through there. There's a there's a connection between Little Man and Lee, which Really, I I don't even know how that turns it all on its head, but you're right. The, the a, a recurring face everywhere is Little Man. He's even in Carlo. He's even at Carlo's arraignment. I mean, all almost all of our major characters are at that arraignment. But you know, we we joked last week uh, that Michael he when he deadpans when he's uh, delivering food to Ed, he talks about how he has no free time that he devotes his entire life to this, and we laughed that it worked on you know the two levels that because he spent all of his time running around trying to clean up the death of Rocco uh, and trying to keep Adam's name out of it. In this episode, Jimmy very much kind of reminded me of Michael, how we've seen Michael this entire series. I mean, Jimmy's just running around putting out fires between having to go back and forth to the marina. He's he's trying to keep Carlo out of jail. Then he's at the racehorse track with Fia. Mm -hmm. I like the fact that they hold family meetings at the racetrack. I think that's kind of fun. Uh, What's your (laughs) takeaway of this conversation between Fia, who Fia, who was there to watch Carlo get pinched, who we already no has a strained feeling towards carlo she's taken all of that in and she goes right to her father and i think it's another testament to the relationship that that jimmy and fia have but that she is courageous enough and and has the balls enough to confront him straight out about what carlo did or didn't do uh what was your big takeaway from this conversation between these two I think that Fia is tired of being in the dark and tired of having to just observe her family implode all the time. I think we got little nuggets of that when she was questioning God and asking asking questions like, you know, do you think Rocco's in heaven and stuff like that? She's done being like a bystander and she wants to step forward and be like, dad, like what is happening? Tell me more. I'm not going to, I lost one brother. I'm, I don't, I want to know what's going on. I want to understand what's happening. 
while I understand the idea of, you know, maybe having these conversations outside of Gina's earshot or or maybe feeling like the the hotel maybe is compromised, so maybe we're going to talk at the track, but it would have seemed more natural to have these conversations back on, you know, the big comfy couch kind of thing. Because these seemed like, it seemed like a lot to have Fia come to the racetrack, you know, where she's like not even old enough to really be there. Um, so it kind of seemed a little... Like it stuck out to me, like, okay, like this, this was a different set that for, I'm not sure what reason. Yeah, it just didn't seem subtle at all. <laughs> One, Jimmy probably doesn't want to be at his house or anywhere where it would be predictable for him to be because he's not sure what the fallout is from Carlo and Carlo being arrested. Uh, remember, and this was a key thing when Cusack, you know, intercepts Nancy after he pulls her out of the room where she's interviewing Carlo. Well, the only really substantive thing there for, I think, us to take away from is Cusack asks her, what did he say? Like, what did he talk or not? Because that's information Jimmy needs to know. He doesn't trust Carlo, I don't think, for one thing, and, and isn't maybe, maybe feels he's not above making a deal selling out himself so that Carlo can get himself out of trouble. If I'm, if I'm Jimmy, knowing the relationship I have with Carlo and how I think maybe Carlo feels about me, maybe I'm thinking he trades me up for his own freedom. There's other parts to that too. I mean, Cusack was a part of the prison transfer. And so in that regard, I think that if the dominoes start to fall and Carlo admits to being in that other jail and that other prison for a night, it's all going to come back to who did the transfer? How did he get there? Why was he there? You know, all this kind of stuff that is it is going to start falling onto talking to the people who actually did the physical transport and then who ordered it, who okayed it, you know? Yeah. Like, I think that there's a lot going back to the police officers as well. And if from the Jimmy side, it also does implicate Gina and all that stuff too. Carlo could do that. So I, I see what you're saying. Like, there's a whole lot of people who could go down on this. Yeah, I mean, something tells me Jimmy Jimmy has a clear understanding of, the, of his kids' loyalties and probably isn't too worried about Carlo selling out Gina. He wouldn't mean to. He, he's so stupid. He wouldn't mean to. But if you go back and start looking at the transfers, someone at some point is going to say the mom came up and talked to him, blah, blah, blah. You know, like implicate his own mom on accident. Yeah. So I think Jimmy, Jimmy is probably intentionally staying away from the hotel. He's intentionally staying away from his house. It, he probably either has an ownership stake in the racetrack or in the horses that are working out on the track. I'm guessing that. Yeah. That gives him a reason to be there. You know, there's probably Baxter protocol for, you know, if if we can't meet in place A or B, then we go to place C or D. So this is actually probably not an uncommon occurrence for Fia to have to go there. Given who Jimmy is and the fingers and pies that the pies that he probably has his fingers in, this is probably not a main meeting place, but it's probably like a backup backup. I guess it, like, OK, so because I was complimenting how they were filling out the characters, I wish they would bother to fill out the world a little bit more like that. If he owns a horse, there could have been a couple lines here or there. Maybe maybe she walks by and a trainer's like, hey, Fia. And he's like, hi, Mr. Whatever, you know, whatever, you know, like something where you can fill out the world a little better. So we understand, does Jimmy own the track? Does he, is he a part of the gambling side of it? Is, does he own a horse? It matters because we have just spent so much time clarifying the individual characters that now we're kind of putting them into their settings. And now the settings are like head scratching, like, why are we here? Before we move off of the racetrack, I, I'm curious what your take on Jimmy's answer to Fia's question about did Carlo kill Kofi Jones? He doesn't answer her. 
instead his answer is some he starts talking about his unconditional love for his children is that an answer in itself father's love for his children is unconditional I love you. I love him. I loved Rocco. I love Rocco. Um, I mean, no, it's not an answer unto itself. I think that more than anything, I think it's inserting that dialogue into the storyline. I think it was clumsy. I but I understand that they're trying to continuously nail down to all of us unconditional love what parents do for kids you know we overlook things we do things every day to try to make things better for them even when we know this isn't you know the right thing that just needed to get like into the record if you will since we're doing a a, uh, your honor podcast it was a clumsy question and it was a clumsy you know oh i think we're kind of trying to answer that question but really it was about let's have let's have a little spiel about unconditional love i don't think it was a clumsy question not if you're fia but i think the setup was clumsy like i don't think that's the right question to get that answer like you said but i think it was important to have those words put into the show's record so i think she could have been asking other things and maybe he could have stopped her and been like, hey, I'm not going to answer any of those questions. And here's why. It's about unconditional love. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and then he could have launched into a spiel. The give and take wasn't entirely natural there. Interesting. See, I took it differently. I took it as a very implicit. Yeah, he did. But I still love him unconditionally. It almost almost as if to say no matter what he did or didn't do, I love him. And for me, I, for me, by not answering, because he never says, he never flatly denies it when she comes back because she asks the question and then he goes about the police, the police, he, he has the Katrina dig about abandoning their post and selling the t-shirts and then yeah. she redirects him back to it and she, she asks it again and he doesn't deflect, but he also doesn't deny it, which Jimmy, I don't think has any problem lying or saying whatever well, he wants to say. But don't he, you think that this is where Fia's code might also stem from? The whole don't lie to me, don't lie to me. Maybe this is a whole family thing. Like, if you're not going to tell the truth, that's one thing. But don't lie to me. So he dances all around it, but he doesn't lie to her. But that's an answer in of itself, though. Yeah, but that's one of her tenets, though, is like, don't straight out lie to me. Right, right. But that's, I'd say, that's, when I'm, that's why I asked the question, because to me, it was an answer by not denying it. And, and switching the topic to unconditional love in their language, in their communication language, that is a confirmation that he did it. That's how I took it anyway. I, yeah. be, because it was an indirect, because he didn't deny it, but instead answered in a, answered a, a question not asked. <laughs> you know, she didn't ask, do you love us all unconditionally? Do you love us? Do you love us all? Do you continue to love Rocco? He, she didn't ask any of that. But, th- you know, it, classic parent of, I'm not going to, I didn't lie to you. I just didn't answer your question. I think that is an answer. There's like these specific little things like that Rocco moment when he said, I loved Rocco. I love Rocco. There was like these specific lines that I just felt were, someone said, maybe they had him on like a big tablet somewhere. And they're like, let's make sure we work in these particular moments that happen when you lose a kid. 
you find yourself talking in the past tense, then you change it to the present or present to past, one or the other. Like he had these little kind of moments that I think were important, but I just think that that entire interaction felt like without better um, understanding of the Baxter's connection to where we were and what we were doing, there was a part of it that automatically felt unnatural and weird to the storyline that was like, we're in episode seven. Now we've said this whole time. Wow, we've moved really fast. We've done so much. If we're in episode seven, and I don't know that Jimmy Baxter has shit to do with a racetrack, don't bring me to the racetrack and don't tell me anything and just have this isolated conversation. They could have had it on the moon. You know, like this just felt bizarre. Like, I don't like any of that. This was the first time in the show where I felt like we were being shown parts of New Orleans without any kind of reasoning. Because not only do we see the racetrack, but then we see... After we get past the very not busy marina, I don't know what everyone should do their fucking dirty business at the marina. There's no one around there. We're moving bodies. It takes them eight yeah. years to get the fucking thing in we the boat. We had one There's guy just everywhere. say like, hidey ho. Yeah. And, and no one's there. I mean, Michael's, Michael, Michael's taking a flash dance shower with a well, gallon of blood. You know what's blood. weird, Mike? If you remember the timing... You might have thought if he had Trevor meet him there at 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. or something, maybe the meetup time was noon. Yeah. And then they had all the shenanigans that happened. And then they're moving the body at like two in the afternoon. Like, how could no one have come by? It's the middle of the day. I guess your your point you've said before, though, New Orleans is always hot. So it's not like there's an off season for boats. Big capital letters to the left. Man, if I if I'm ever going to commit crimes in down in Louisiana, I'm going to this marina because you can you can take all day to load bodies into boats. You can take bloody showers with complete with brains to say nothing of the fact that there was a gunshot. No one apparently heard. So I want to circle back as we before we get into Michael and Jimmy, which for me was the highlight of this episode. The comment I started to make before was not only do we see the racetrack for the first time and kind of out of nowhere, then we're at we're at a college racetrack where Michael and Jimmy meet later on. They meet under the stands. At, it must be some one of the universities in New Orleans yeah. at, at the racetrack at that racetrack, a different racetrack, a racetrack for humans. Not a racetrack, like a, a like a running track, like, like a running track. Yes, it was a like a track and field. It was a, a yes. stadium, a track and field stadium. Again, like head shaking, like okay, like I get it, right. I get it. You're moving around. Maybe that's what we're supposed to be noticing he's moving around as to not be maybe well, tracked that's probably or not which, be... that, which i like but then say that kind of thing you know like... or you know do what you do that has been happening in the previous episodes layer in have somebody say something just a right. one-liner like he can be like bah that i can't be at the hotel right now i've got business right. to be doing but i have to be fucking hiding around in different locations right now you know right. like he could have been pissed or even like rock rocco is going to go to tulane no or you know wherever the fuck that oh, was you know yeah. something like that just to drive home bringing michael there to you know continue to make him feel bad about the loss of his child kind of thing but i want to circle back to carlo just just to give nancy a little pat on the back we haven't really seen her too too much at work we've seen her talk to michael we've seen her interact with adam and she definitely has a whole bulldog aspect to her a very dog with a bone very very tenacious and the one time we did we were highly impressed when we saw her in the garage with the recovered volvo she was like madam inquisitive <laughs> we've not seen her in an interrogation room watching sure. her with carlo i was impressed with her because on top of the fact that she didn't punch him in his very punchable face after you know telling her to you know fuck it up you know fuck you up the ass or whatever she appeals to his vanity and his machismo as a method of trying to get him to confess early and i think that's such a smart read on who carlo is 
I was really impressed that that's the track, the, the tact that she took, uh, appealing that it takes a lot of courage, it takes a lot of balls to confess early. Not everyone can do it because of what it means. What was your What was your impression of Nancy at interrogation work? Well, I mean, it's woman 101 to know that, you know, men's egos just need to be stroked. And he is a particularly young, what do I want to say, malleable youth, if you will. Well, he's all and testosterone. So he's all stallion, he not broken by is, life. Yeah. yeah. And so she played it totally right, I thought. I think had there not been knocking on the door, I think she could have actually made some excellent inroads with him. But So to set up the carrot so well and then whack him over the head with the stick with the very graphic death penalty horror stories. Were you surprised oh, that this was a death God. penalty case to begin with? We had already watched the brains and stuff. Yeah. With Trevor, but now we're getting graphic death it penalty graphic. botched uh, injection stories. I live only about an hour away from Old Sparky here in Texas. It's it's not something that is not talked about. So it being a death penalty case, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know what constitutes that in other states, but here I, it definitely would be. I, but because it's about electrocution here, I don't hear that much about lethal injection. And the actual details of the fact that the person who is putting that in is not like a nurse or is not somebody who's like a medical person. I don't know that that's accurate. I'm kind of curious about that. Does that seem true to you? I don't know. My understanding is with the injections, it's th I knew it's three different drugs and I an IV makes sense. But I mean, they have medical staff at prisons. Yeah, there's something, though, because of the culpability of the death penalty that I think multiple people are involved with the administering of the drug, so not one of them can ever be definitively held to have been the one to carry out the sentence. Ooh, like, okay. there's, like, multiple people are throwing a switch on an electric chair. I believe multiple people are pulling plungers uh, in lethal injection cases. I think. I'd have to check that. I, I feel... Online, it says, typically a prison employee trained in vein puncture inserts the needle, while a second prison employee orders, prepares, and loads the drugs. Two other staff members take each of the three syringes and secure them into the IVs. So there are multiple people. I mean, you know, hello, she's just trying to scare him. So it doesn't have to be exactly right. You know, that was this person given training in IVs or not? Maybe she's completely correct. You know, she's just she's just going with the idea that like, you know, whatever. Carlo doesn't fucking know how, how an execution looks. I can exaggerate it. That's the point. The idea, though, of like shoving it in his groin and everything. Oh, my God. I, if you didn't jump a little, I squirmed for, for every every man. Did you jump a little bit about the groin? Yeah, I don't like groin talk. Uh, eyeball, <laughs> eyeball talk and groin talk are always going to get me to squirm. Oh, well, that's fair. Squirm, not a lot makes me flinch, but uh, groin talk makes me cross my legs and eyeball talk makes me close my eyes. That's really funny. <laughs> you want to hear some botched uh, death penalty statistics? Sure. Uh, based on an article from 2014 published by Stanford University, lethal injection actually has the highest botched execution rate. Uh, there have been 1,054 lethal injection executions, 75 of which have been botched, which is an execution rate, a uh, botched execution rate of 7.12%. 
That's a much higher rate than you would think. Botched ex execution rates and an electrocution, which is the by far most common method of execution, has 1.92% botched execution rate. That's 84 botched executions out of 4,374. Do you know what the least botched execution method is? Oh, God. Uh, would it be firing squad? It is. Uh, firing, <laughs> I didn't think about it. I was like, what's left? Firing squad has a 0% botched execution rate. <laughs> well, that's no fair. You just keep going until they Out of 34 uh, firing squad executions, zero botched. There's an average rate of 3.15% botched execution rate when you take them all together. None of it is anything that anyone wants to think about. And, and I understand that, you know, there's plenty of states who don't partake in the death penalty at all. But in this case, I feel like Carlo needs to understand the stakes of what yeah. he's doing. He is so out of control. I mean, think about it. He was only out of prison for like 30 seconds and he's like already into something else. He, he really, he's so reckless. He's going to end up killing other people. He doesn't care. And the whole reason he was in prison in the first place was just basically like snapping out on somebody. Yeah. So he's the definition you know, he's of bad unpredictable, uh, unpredictable violence. He's And how about like, and also not rehabilitated having served his time in any way. If you're Jimmy, you have to have real reservations about Carlo. Not that I would ever want to speak ill of any human being, but if I'm Jimmy, Carlo is much better off on the bottom of the ocean next to Trevor than anywhere uh, else. Yeah. Uh, the problem is Gene is going to have a big freaking problem with that. That That's going to become the real holdup here is, is Gina is going to go to the mattress defending Carlo. I, when you just said the ocean thing and I said the Gulf, it made me think of how layered they have done this story. And it made me really glad that we had that oyster story beforehand about how he, you know, supplied oysters and everything, because everything clicks together for me about the marina and Jimmy and like having a place where he knew to go to take him to go shoot the guys in the warehouse. Because, of course, he knows his way around the marina, because, of course, he's the supplier for our oysters. And he's the oyster king. It all makes so much sense. And it like it played so nice. And that's why I get aggravated about a running track and a racetrack just being thrown in. Let's get back to the to the running track. You have these two titans, these men willing to do whatever it takes to save their children, kind of really clashing up against each other. Each of them being kind of in a vulnerable, vulnerable spot for the other. Jimmy is vulnerable to Michael because he needs Michael to help keep Carlo safe and out of jail, which is Jimmy's, despite what might be best for his business uh, and his well-being, that's his urging as a father is to keep Carlo out of the prison system. Michael obviously is dependent on Jimmy to keep breathing and to keep his life going and to keep Adam <laughs> safe. What did you think of the version of the story that Michael gives Jimmy about how the murder happened? Because Jimmy really kind of peppers him for answer down to where did he throw the phone, which he says the river, not the lake, by the way, to, to settle a question you and I have had going back to the very beginning of the episode. Yeah, no. And when we talked about that, how Pontchartrain has the canal in between and then it goes down to the Mississippi River. And I said, I ultimately thought it was in the Mississippi River because you had said lake initially yes. and I had corrected you and said, no, it's the river. But then, yeah, there's a lake, a canal and a river all connected right there. So it totally makes sense. But um, what did I think about his retelling? Well, actually, we've never been shown on screen a full retelling of everything that happened between Adam and Rocco and the exact crime. We saw it with our own eyes and we could compare that to what Michael said. But Michael doesn't even really know the whole story 
Not really. Not by just the parts that Adam just kind of spit out. Or at least the parts that we saw on camera. But that's all we can go with, right? Is like, well, how much does Michael know? We can only go with how much we think they've continued to talk about this. And I don't, I thought that they kind of made an agreement very early on that we're never to speak of this again. Like you're not, you're supposed to forget the details of this. So I don't get the idea that they went back and had multiple conversations about it. I think he pieced it together fairly convincingly. Mm -hmm. I I believe what he said. I I think there were parts there that, that I think he didn't, he didn't address. And and it's still unclear. Like we all know Adam, has a cell phone because he doesn't answer it. So why he ever used Rocco's cell phone and pulled it out of his pocket, that is a question that that Jimmy constantly wants to know. Why did someone take Rocco's phone? Even we don't really have a perfect answer to that, except for just he was close and I guess the cell phone was still back in the car. But but it's a really benign reason, you know? There's something to the idea that Adam, he used the phone that he found on Rocco to call 911 because it was close and then kind of maybe held onto it, not like a trophy, but more as like a like a talisman, like almost like he couldn't let it go the, to the point where he, he has it propped up in a car when he when it starts to ring, when 911 calls back, uh, tries to call back when the police are next to him at the red light and then they call back at well, the gas station. Let's think about that. Let's think about that for a second, because we shouldn't just like, gloss over why we think he had it. He used the phone, right? Mm-hmm. And he used the phone to call his dad. And so I don't know if for some reason we're supposed to think that somehow he didn't have his phone with him that day. And so he continued to use Rocco's phone and that's why he got rid of it. But because he called his dad between Rocco dying and getting to the gas station and right. having that second 911 call. So he couldn't just get rid of the phone. He had to like dispose of it, dispose of it, even though we all said, well, that really didn't fix it because phone records would show it. I don't really know. Do you really know why he used Rocco's phone or why, at least when you got back to the car, didn't you use your own phone to call your own dad? Why did you continue to use Rocco's phone? I, I don't know. I don't know. I do know that it was interesting to hear Nancy playing the voicemail yes. on Carlo's phone yes. that Jimmy left for him, Agreed. which made me think of the voicemail Adam left yes. for Michael. Mm-hmm. Someone eventually is going to get a hold of that because remember, still, yes. even still today, even with Michael telling Jimmy Adam's name, and we didn't, at least didn't see recognition or any kind of like cocked head on Jimmy's part because he's probably not thinking about Fia's boyfriend. But at some point, in some quiet moment, Michael's got a son named Adam. Fia knows a boy who's just suddenly come into her life named Adam. But even before Adam walks into that house, which inevitably has to happen sooner rather than later, I feel God, more I than thought ever. it was going to be in this episode. <laughs> there was no time. If there could be had a fucking clean up murder. I know. And, and, and spend all day a clean up day. He's got no, he's got to bring food to ed he's got no time this is his whole life (laughs) the adam connection has now been formally introduced michael telling jimmy to his face i've got a son his his name is adam adam is now gonna get pushed all into this in a way michael has tried to keep him out of it this episode was the final crack in the dam before those floodgates open because his name is out there now his name has now been manifested into being in front of jimmy he might take some weird ballsy uh, tacks where he kind of turns it around to Jimmy and really gets kind of like aggressive in Jimmy's face, which doesn't seem like the smartest plan to me. You know, your leverage over Jimmy Baxter is much, much less than Jimmy Baxter's leverage over your continued breathing. I was right. I was surprised that he took the aggressive tact that he would roll the dice like that. 
I think he's just losing it. I think he's just losing his cool, you know? He's just exhausted. And you said it last week about the makeup and the everything that just, yeah. he's just starting to really, it's wearing on him. And he's just, he can't stay in control all the time. Yeah. And well, I think it's a hot button issue for Michael because this, the conversation was triggered by, Jimmy saying, have you told your son what kind of man you really are? And that's mm-hmm. a real trigger item. Well, that's when he said, have you told your son who you are? Like It was like a super snotty back and forth. That's what I'm saying. Like, that's a ballsy retort. Like, it is. Take the shape. Like, you killed, like, this guy's son is dead because of someone in your family. Like, have, have a little humility about that. And I'm not saying show your belly. I'm not saying, you know, put your tail between your legs because I'm sure Jimmy is the kind of guy who respects someone with a backbone, but that's a different thing than coming back at him. Michael still sees himself as a good man doing bad things for a good reason and a noble reason, trying to save his son. So I think he's very prickly. This is not the first time we've seen him turn super prickly and super kind of pissed off when someone has impinged, besmirched his reputation uh, or or the idea that he's anything other than a good man. Remember when he's in the back seat of the car and the cop is talking to him about the panty sniffer who eventually, you know, started, you know, raping and killing women, stuffing panties in their mouth. Michael takes that personally, too. That you can't judge a man based on what you fear he might become. Michael's very prickly about his honor, your honor. <laughs> and I think that was the trigger. I I think he becomes so aggressive and turns it back on Jimmy. Uh, have you told your kids about what kind of man you are? Blah, 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 you yeah. know, because because of the besmirchment. I, I, he can deal with a lot of things. I, can't, I don't think he can deal with. Besmirchment is not it. <laughs> if he had a white glove, I think he would have slapped him across the face for, for doing it. I love that. Call your second Jimmy Listen Baxter. to me. We have got to get into the arraignment and all that because I am hot to talk about Nancy and the whole fucking sitch with Sarah. Holy smokes. Poor Sarah. Poor that Sarah. That was terrible. Everything I was about watching that. this with someone else and I was yelling out loud. I was like, oh my God. Oh my God. He set her up. He invited her for drinks. Oh my God. He set her up. And the other person who was watching was like, I don't think he set her up. That just happened. Though. I'm like, oh no, 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 no. She doesn't go get drinks if not for him. Mm-hmm. Oh no. Oh no, no, no. Well, that that's was the how, right? So bad mike part of the whole jimmy michael dynamic is that they actually do kind of work well together we we see that in after the courtroom scene right when jimmy eventually storms out because michael because he says you know go fuck yourself swearing good god and then he says you know did you hear me and michael is full judge he's playing his role of full judge my other theme this week is people playing roles right there's the the, the play acting this week because then jimmy's in you know at the back there and he's like it was beautiful you you hate me i hate you I know. I didn't expect it to come out like that. Did you expect him to come with like a, I was just playing my pod. I was playing angry. Did you expect that? And there was a lot of stuff going on there because he's acting like that. But then Michael, who is not being hip to the jive of the play acting that just happened, makes the fatal mistake of saying, if I get this case. And he's like, oh, fuck, you get if, 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 not when, you know. <laughs> but then like, then he, now he's not playing acting. I like that you're doing like a full New York accent for him. <laughs> he's like, so not. It's just your mafia accent accent that's super funny well so here's the thing from central casting have we met (laughs) i thought the introduction of the prosecutor who i recall as abby right from er so okay so it's more uh tyranny right tyranny i I know i know who you're talking about on er i didn't think that was her though is that you didn't am i totally wrong is her hair just super different i don't know 
Well, they they made it look ugly, but I mean, you're better with that stuff than I am. I I, I think it's her. If it's not her, I apologize, but I think it's her. Okay, so I know we have some listeners who are very very good at this, and they're going to know in a second. So if I got that wrong, I apologize. Remember, but no I credits really... in the version we saw. So you guys are getting to watch it with credits. We didn't get to watch. It yeah, credits. yeah, we don't have credits. We don't have that stuff. No, here we go. Mm-hmm. Moira Tierney to recur on Showtime's Brian Cranston drama, Your Honor. Oh, there you go. All right. Well, then you could just say definitively. There you go. Definitively, it's her. Okay. So, but I thought that was actually kind of funny that the way that she just like says like fuck you fuck yourself blah 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 those are the words of one carlo baxter (laughs) like i thought it was kind of funny like i don't know we kind of needed that moment to be sort of like shake it up you know and then it did like completely throw me when jimmy's like approaches him in the in the hallway and they're kind of like yelling at each other and he's like no but i like did that because like you hate me and i hate you and I love that. I would yes, watch that show. Give funny. me the give me the fucking Jimmy Michael like I, like yeah. buddy, buddy buddy whatever. It's buddy, not cop buddy. Like, yeah, well, like it's a, not. But it's like Judge Mafia guy. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, like odd couple. Like you know, yes, uh, Gina yes. throws Jimmy out. Michael got nowhere to go, so Jimmy <laughs> has to move in with Michael. In the big and, house. Yeah, yeah, and they sp- they share Jingo. And, oh my god! Adam's out in the casita and comes in, and Jimmy and Michael are playing poker. Yeah. <laughs> and like you know, Jimmy doesn't. Use a coaster, and Michael puts all the shit on coasters, <laughs> and there's cigar burns. It's a whole thing. It's odd That's couple really rebooted funny. in, in funny. New Orleans. It's fantastic. I hate you. You hate me. Yeah, I want that. So it was so so good. Oh my god. In order to get the case for anyone who was like, like the person who's watching with me, who was like, I, don't, I didn't see them. So in order to get the case, Sarah was supposed to have the case. He instead set Sarah up for a big fat DUI here. <gasps> now it's back up. Like he didn't, he didn't get called. It wasn't like given back over to him in this episode, but it's at least back up on the table, right? That she's, she's going to get in trouble. This is going to affect her career. I yeah. was so outraged. I was like, I can't believe he would set this woman up. I cannot believe given everything. Given the racial tension we've already seen established in this series, just think back to when Kofi initially gets pulled over. Yeah. It, that's the backdrop of this world already. And so to set someone up, a person of color to get arrested, what are you doing? A woman who is his boss? Ah! Uh... If is something more than just a work associate. Maybe they're not best friends because there definitely seems when they're, I mean, that's a very oh, awkward I, scene where they're drinking. Well, here's the thing though, Mike, maybe they were friends at one point in time, but they, they are not friends now because her whole thing about like, you're the slowest judge, blah, blah, blah. No, I mean, she is done. She has given him chances. Their relationship is frayed here. Yeah, but that's of all his own doing though, right? I mean, she yes. she throws the Willie Horton reference at him, which made me cringe. I mean, people of a certain age have probably no idea who Willie Horton is, but go ask Michael Dukakis about Willie fucking Horton and the idea, the 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 not in my backyard fear of furloughs that sank Dukakis's campaign. So way back in 1988, George H.W. Bush was running for president. Michael Dukakis was the Democrat running against him and and was doing well in the campaign. It, during one of the debates, no, it was a commercial. It came out that a prisoner named Willie Horton had been furloughed uh, because of shortages in the Massachusetts, I believe it was, prison system. And Willie Horton, I, I don't know if he was a murderer beforehand, but ended up going, I think, killed someone or killed multiple people after being furloughed out of the prison. So what does furloughed mean for anyone who's not? He was not released asking. early from his prison sentence because not because he had earned it, but because of shortages in the financial system. The point Sarah's making here is your slowness is violating these 
people's civil rights. And so we have to cut them loose and put dangerous people back on the street because you're too slow administering your justice. For her to bring that up, and that's a really, like, no one talks about Willie Horton anymore, but for Sarah to bring that up, and this is not the first time we've heard her lambasting him about his speed, but the idea that Fox News is now coming down to New Orleans to do a, a piece the lack of speed and the violation of rights and, and everything that it entails. And Michael is the poster child for that. Their relationship, whatever their friendship used to be, has has been frayed completely. But she still gives him the arraignment. That says something. Yeah, but he, he messed it up in Sarah's eyes and was like, nope, this did not go well. I just can't believe he did this to her. I can't believe that he ruined her career. I mean, when we look back at all the things that Michael has done as this series has progressed and he has gotten deeper and deeper into the cover up. And we said, I feel like we said so early on, the cover up be always is so much worse than the crime. This is going to destroy this woman's life. I, I can't even believe that Michael is destroying another person's career like this. Like, I can't even. Just her being arrested will have her removed from this position as the head of the judges. Even if she had a spotless record with no enemies, and there's always enemies in a political position, we know she's an enemy of the Baxters. We established that early on when she was the only one who stood up to Carlo being released early to go to the funeral. So Sarah, we know, has enemies. But even if she had no enemies, being arrested for a DWI or DUI will cost her her job that's a minimum to say nothing of of anything else that may happen to her just that alone is going enough to ruin her professional life to say anything of her personal career or how this may spiral her out that's pretty unfucking forgivable michael like wow but you know jimmy told him all right you've given me the why of your plan, but how are you going to do the how? And again, this is actually where the show shines, right? Because we don't hear Michael's how, we see the how. And it's kind of it's kind of genius. It's diabolical. It's and it's nothing it short of diabolical. Is, and that's what scares me. Like, I mean, he knew exactly what to do. He knew that she would come for a birthday drink. He set this whole fucking thing up. I mean, damn it, Mike. I mean, I don't I'm starting to wonder, are we supposed to hate Michael? Are, are we supposed to hate him by the end of this? Michael is increasingly hard to root for. I mean, the whole show, it all goes for one of the conversations, and there are so many good lines in the show. I go back to that conversation with the cop in a car, the I just mentioned a few minutes ago you can't judge a man about what you fear he might become michael's talking about himself in that scene in hindsight and i think that's one of the things he became so prickly about in that conversation because michael is doing things that you can't walk back you can't unfuck sarah's career you can't unfuck how you've ruined her life there you can't unkill trevor like there are so many things that michael has done that you know the line, if there's a line in the sand about what a good man is and what a good man will do and what a good man won't do, Michael is so far past the line, he can't even see the line when he turns behind himself is kind of how it becomes week after week after week. It's pretty unforgivable. Of all the, ba of all the bad things Michael has done in the name of a good cause, this may be the one that's absolutely unforgivable. I, I, I can't, I can't even, I mean... Let's get into Michael getting home. Yeah, I mean, we really haven't talked about Lee. Lee, who gets fired, which is just kind of thrown in a little bit. Shit, that again, though, again, though, Mike, he has ruined two women's careers 
by dragging them into the situation that they didn't have to be in. Lee wasn't going to be a part of this case. She wouldn't have been involved with Kofi. None of this shit happens if Michael doesn't do what he does. And Lee is fired. Ah. Yeah, and I don't know that an I love you from Michael to divert her attention from the judge being arrested across the way in the intersection is really enough to make up for her, you know, losing a very cushy, probably very well-paying job. But, you know, at the same time, though, it does seem like Lee wasn't doing the work that Lee probably wants to be doing, but that that seems like really kind of putting lipstick on a pig. You know, I, I don't know if you can make a good situation uh, a bad situation, good, just because Lee now is Lee has free time to actually do the kind of legal work she wants to do. Is that what is that what the cell is here? Then that's that should have been Lee's choice, not this whole scenario. This is just bad. I yeah, mean, I agree, I agree. Yeah, uh... Michael is just weaving a path of destruction, and at some point, you have to turn and ask yourself why. Why? You know, I mean, yes, I know the why is so that Adam doesn't get held in the wrath of Jimmy Baxter. Interesting that Michael actually used that as part of his story. I did go to the police station and then I saw it yeah. was you. And Jimmy I was actually, shocked. Jimmy actually kind of seemed to understand that a little bit. That was how I took his reaction anyway. Yeah, but I think that's like an ego stroke in its own way. I mean, oh, watch Nancy sure. do it. I mean, to, to be like, oh, but you're such a big, strong man. I was so scared. Yeah. No, a hundred percent. Yeah. Michael, Michael's pretty good in this conversation. I, I mean, I was, I was questioning the sanity of becoming aggressive and turning it back on Jimmy, but I mean, Jimmy doesn't shoot him. So in the end, Michael seems to make the good call, right? He actually plays that whole conversation well, even with losing the case, which is why he has met my Jimmy at the running track is to tell him that he didn't get assigned the case. He's able to walk out of there without his legs being shot off, without any being beaten in the face any more than he had been. Uh, <laughs> you know, so he ha he navigates. He knows how to talk to Jimmy Baxter in a way that, you know, at least lets him keep breathing from moment to moment. And when you're willing to sell Sarah, your boss, and former friend down the river in the way he did tonight. Well, what aren't you willing to do? At this well, point? he is willing to let his dog eat brains. Oh, fuck. <laughs> That was so disgusting. I could not believe that entire part of telling Adam, oh, me and the dog were, were playing, blah, blah, blah. And Adam's like, you were wrestling? I was what, like, what, no, stop. Oh, that? yes. What up? Come on. Yes, I understood the, the significance. Well, tell people because maybe people don't pick up. Oh, that's how he said that why Adam had the bruises was because they were wrestling. That's the excuse he gave the teacher. Fathers and sons have a language. Parents and children have a language in that they talk and there's code words. You should not have a code for something bad happened and you're lying to me about it. But Michael and Adam now have a code of wrestling for when facial abuse happens through something bad and you don't want to tell the truth about it. That's not a good sign. That's not a good development in their relationship that they have that shorthand now. No, <laughs> no, it's not. How horrible is it that that Lee gets fired for your ass and for dragging, you know, being drugged into your mess and has planned a whole surprise birthday party for you mm -hmm. just to have a dog barf up brains in the middle of it? God, Lee's putting up a lot. <laughs> really is. He's got to be some kind of animal in the sack is what I'm thinking. He better be. That's the thing, though. Didn't you expect that? This is where I'm missing a little bit here. They needed to solidify their relationship better for us. It shouldn't have just been one 
encounter and, you know, the, that afterglow accidental stumbling into family dinner and that was it. Come on. There should have been another dinner, another date, another something like more. We needed more stuff to make it be like Lee is okay with coming back after friggin' losing her job and still throwing a, you know, a birthday party for him. Like, we need more. Or next week better be a big giant argument between the two of them. Well, so so a couple things to that. One, they're having a conversation about saying I love you for the first time, which is, you know, something he's talking to Sarah about before she kind mm. of abruptly leaves. She's like, I'm out, <laughs> which she gets off the chair and leaves. That whole conversation was weird. She she seemed very she much like I there. did not want to be there, which makes, she didn't want which to be there. makes what happened even worse. Yeah. I mean, she was just doing it out of obligation. That's the saddest part. It really is. You really got to be careful with the good deeds you do. Wait, you called the I love you thing. You're, you're speaking of that? That happened because Lee would have seen Sarah be arrested. So it's so horrible. It's so horrible, but it's something that was obviously on his mind because he was talking to Sarah about, you know, is it too soon a year after? Is it a betrayal? Which, again, he's 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 lured her there under false pretenses, but kind of like how he confessed his worries and burdens to Ed, there is truth in what he's actually talking about. I mean, he's a piece of shit for doing it and for bringing her there, but the things he's talking about are real, and I think... Potentially real, Mike. Potentially real. All Sarah true. and Lee are likely to talk to each other. If eventually Lee says something to Sarah, like, oh, he said he love you and she's like oh he was talking about it that night blah, blah blah okay that just corroborated his whole thing but here's the thing women stick around if you ask for their help that is a man rule that if men don't know that y'all should take note okay men need their ego stroked women need to be asked for help they want to feel useful so she sticks around because he's like i need your advice i need your help she is feeling compelled to help that's just a good reason to get her to stick around and drink I, all, I agree with all of that, but to, to to the romance, to the throwing of the birthday party, and 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 whether or not we've seen enough to layer that in, it, it seems anyway that when you think back, when I think back to the midday booty call, come back to bed situation, that that's a pretty significant thing to be having there. And if they haven't even shared "I love you," uh, but they have a long-standing friendship, I don't know. I feel like there's enough there that she would throw him a small family and friends birthday party at his house because because it also makes sense that they're ostensibly dating so we don't know that she planned it as much as she was the person to get him there because you I mean charlie's the one who gets up and gives this magnanimous toast about what a wonderful man he is which you could just see brian cranston trying to crawl under the table and die uh because of all the things that had happened today in particular she knows him well enough they're friends long enough they apparently have a, a, a professional relationship and friendship and mentorship obviously that goes back to his marriage so there's enough there, I think, relationship-wise and other that she would be involved in a in a plan, a birthday party at his house. No, I just mean, though, she lost her job. Yeah, like, he doesn't know that, though, though. No, no, no. She knows that, though. Sure. I'm just saying, for, for the audience, you got to give us a little bit more. You got to give us, like, more that there is, like, a, something that Lee is feeling that is willing to have so much happen. Like, ah, I don't know. I'm just saying, it, it's getting a little bit inconsistent for me about things that we're spending a lot of time fueling and explaining and, you know, just spending our time watching versus things that really need our attention 
Nancy uncovering this entire Cusack, Baxter, who knows what relationship. <laughs> I mean, that's, that, a, that's a thread I that she began to pull at, wait. but I'm so excited to see where that I am goes. So excited. I want to spend so much time with that, and I want a lot less hanging out on a boat. <laughs> I just, I want the other characters and what they're up to to come into play more. I mean, Nancy, we haven't had a ton of Nancy, right? We keep getting these little snippets of Nancy. But again, that whole conversation where she follows up with the on-duty officer about Cusack and Xander, the lawyer, talking. And she she does – most people in that conversation are are moving on because they're not even really paying attention to the response. Nancy is always paying attention, though, and always asks the first follow-up, the second follow-up, and she will ask the third follow-up if necessary because she did not let the officer – officer off the hook like i'm sure when he said they know each other like i'm sure that officer did not expect to have to get into a detailed recounting of where and when i saw them talking to each other to the point where it's out in the parking lot but that's who nancy is and both i liked how that both that that interaction actually was because it was so fast it was so fast but the other cop was like "Mm, i don't know girl you might want to check that out more like they kind of he kind of fed that fire a little bit. He did. In a he great said, well, way. This is him off, right? Because he knows he yes. knows the deal about Cusack, and he's probably thinking how much money Cusack's making on the side. And he- nobody likes a dirty cop, not even other cops. No one, no one likes a dirty cop. No one hates a dirty cop more than an honest cop. So yeah, yeah I think that definitely fueled it. And the eye roll and exasperation she gives when she comes up the stairs at the courthouse and sees Xander and Cusack making googly eyes like little school kids made me laugh, but also really fueled the fire like we've only begun to pull at this thread like there's a whole thing that's going to come undone here hey i want to ask you real quick because i cannot remember so i'm going to need your real detailed brain here on the cops that pulled over sarah they weren't dressed in beat they were cop like plain clothes uniforms cops, yeah <laughs> Have they come into play before? Were they cops that were helping take down the basketball hoops? Were they anybody? I ask because they feel like they're on the take as well. They feel like this was like way more orchestrated. So I'm curious if you've seen them. I I don't know that we've seen them, but the fact that they were plain clothes cops and she didn't obviously violate any rules to warrant the stop like she got pulled over because she was always going to get pulled over michael set that up with through jimmy i'm positive through cusack to have those cops waiting at that moment for that woman to come through the that part of the road for her to get pulled over that Mm -hmm. was all orchestrated I, I'm positive of it because there wouldn't be plain clo- plain if you're a plainclothes cop, you're probably not pulling over for a DWI. That's not I, yeah. your jurisdiction. I, I didn't think so. Is Sarah going to help blow this shit up? Is she going to get into some conversations with Lee? What extra information is going to be spread out here? Man, we're on number eight now coming up. And finally, I, <laughs> it feels like, oh, man, I can't believe so much happened. I can't believe so much happened. Now I'm like, oh, my God, we don't have enough episodes left. <laughs> like, ah. I love I love that Marco is at that dinner to watch Jingo throw up Trevor Breen's, you know, yes. everyone that you need, everyone that we Back need in. to move the story forward and really make the world even smaller. Right. This is the theme now. The, the world keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller because everyone is colliding up against everyone now. Margot being back tonight for the party made me really happy. Uh, again, mm-hmm. all table setting. I, I think I think all the dishes were put out. The silverware was put out. The glasses were put on the table with the napkins. We're all ready to sit down and have a birthday party and Trevor brains. 
next week we feast. Next week we <laughs> feast. Skull. <laughs> this is Caroline. And this is Mike. Thank you for listening to Tales from Yaya's, the Your Honor podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Tales from Yaya's at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. And we hope that Django doesn't throw up your brains one day. <laughs> Gross. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.